we all have these internal dialogues about why we're doing what we're doing, but sometimes we're not honest with ourselves. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we believe big things can happen when ideas collide inside the bonds of mutual respect. We're building the town hall of the 21st century across the partisan divide. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. When most separate, we gather across color, creed, and ideology. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us for this throwback program, Your Brain on Tribal Media. This program aired almost exactly three years ago in May of 2018. And not only is it incredibly relevant and helpful today, but it's also very interesting to listen to this with the backdrop of some recent events. Events that, of course, our panelists had no idea were coming. And I'm not going to be a spoiler here, so you're going to have to wait till the end for my reflections about that. Anyway, in this program, we get to examine our relationship with facts and the impact of our biases and the forces around us that influence how we see things. Our facilitator is Steve Seibert, director of the Florida Humanities Council. And Steve will give you more of an intro to this program and to our three esteemed guests. So I'll save all that for him. But I would like to mention two things before I turn it over to Steve. First, usually when we put out these programs on Village Squarecast, we cut to the meat of the program and we leave out the housekeeping stuff that was meant for the audience. Well, this time I kept in just a brief piece about our table rules, and here's why. I realize that many of our podcast listeners may not have been to a Village Square event in person, and so you might not realize what we do that makes it all work, how we manage to sit in a room with a diverse group representing a wide variety of viewpoints, and we talk about big issues related to politics, religion, and race without ending up in the newspaper the next day. There's actually a lot of thought that goes into it, sort of a formula that makes it all work. And one piece is the table rules. They're so awesome, you guys. So if you're not in our area where you can join us in person sometime, maybe you could bring these back to your hometown to help facilitate productive and civil conversations we get called on the regular to share our unique model with other communities around the world, actually, not just the US. And if you want to know more about all that, you can check out episode one of Village Squarecast. It's sort of like Village Square 101. The second thing that I wanted to mention is the table exercise that's part of this program. 
the audience members got to participate in a little exercise that helps demonstrate how hard it can be to identify facts and to decide which sources around us we should trust as most reliable. I loved this part so much, hearing all those voices wrestle with these big and important issues among neighbors. That's what it's all about here at the Village Square. And good news, you get to play along at home or wherever you are right now. It's fun and really informative too. And by the way, if you pay close attention, you'll notice we skip right from the instructions for that exercise to the discussion about what happened at the tables. And that's because, of course, we cut the 15 minutes where people were working on this at their table. You're welcome. All right, get ready to learn a lot of facts about facts, including about coffee. All right. Here's Steve Seibert to get us rolling. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am so delighted you are here. Thank you for coming tonight. My name is Steve Seibert. I have the honor of being the director of the Florida Humanities Council. We are the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. We have been around for 45 years, and we've been putting on programs across this incredible state with great partners, and that's what we have tonight. Before I talk about the program and introduce the speakers and talk about what your responsibilities will be as participants, uh, let me just hit a couple of items that are important to tell you. The first is there are table rules on your table. We love these. And interestingly, they were written by one of our speakers tonight, Eric Deggins. And I'd ask you to take a look at it. I'm actually going to read them because they're really fabulous. For years, Liz was looking for the right set of rules that actually articulated what Village Square stood for, and these are the right ones. So everybody gets respect in the conversations. Walk a mile in the shoes. Walk a mile in their shoes tonight. This is a conversation, not a series of monologues. Don't dominate. Hear each other. Assume good intentions by others. Mistakes do not make you a racist. Talking about race doesn't make you a racist. Embrace diversity of opinion. It makes life interesting. And the conversation applies to all minority groups. These are our table rules. There will be a time in the middle of this gathering tonight where you're going to spend some time talking to each other. We'd ask you to abide by those. All right. The Florida Humanities Council has partnered with the Pointer Institute and the Village Square and with you tonight to answer this question. What does it mean to be an informed citizen? How can we become informed citizens? When we are bombarded with thousands of conflicting news reports, how can we know the truth? How can we become informed? And to make matters more complex, these battles are playing out at the community level where the lack of human understanding is most personal, and particularly when we struggle with issues of race and culture. So in these polarized times, how does the media inform our understanding of and our conversations about race? As usual, Liz Joyner from the Village Square got to the heart of the question when she wrote this. 
somewhere between white supremacists marching and an unbearable number of wrongful deaths of black youth and police officers being gunned down in broad daylight sits the average American, overwhelmed by the escalating anger, confused by what's true and what is not true, and not knowing where to turn to figure it out. Tonight, we're at that intersection of journalism and race and the search for truth. If the foundation of democracy is, as Abraham Lincoln said, a people capable of governing themselves, how do we become informed? So the good news is that we have three people who have all the answers to these questions. And, you know, I, I think I'll just have them come out. Give them a hand. Right? So let me introduce these folks. Dr. Corey Clark earned her Ph.D. in social and personal psychology at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Clark investigates how people's feelings and desires influence their supposedly objective beliefs about the world, particularly in the moral and political domains. In other words, she studies all the things you shouldn't talk about in polite company. Therefore, she's a perfect Village Square panelist. She is also soon to be joining the faculty at the University of Durham in England. Eric Dagens served as the TV media critic for the Tampa Bay Times for nearly 20 years, where many of us met him. In 2013, he became NPR's first full-time TV critic. He has been named as one of Ebony Magazine's Power 150, a list which includes Oprah and Gwen Ifill. He has won a bunch of reporting and writing awards and lectures at universities around the country. He is also the author of the 2012 book, Race Baiter, How the Media Wields Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation. And from the Pointer Institute, we have Alexios Mansalis. He is the director of Pointer's international fact-checking network, the IFCN, International Fact-Checking Network. He writes about and advocates for fact-checking. He trains and convenes fact-checkers around the world and has helped draft a code of principles for fact-checkers. In January of this year, he was invited to join the European Union's high-level group on fake news and disinformation. He has worked for the United Nations and the Italian Institute for International Political Studies. So, by the way, this question that I mentioned earlier is being discussed around the country due to the Mellon Foundation's generous grant to each state humanities council. There is one in each state. We chose to come to Tallahassee because the Village Square has such a rich history of hosting difficult and meaningful community conversations. If any community can help us grapple with the issues of race and media and finding the truth, it is this one, and we thank you for that. So my job, in large part, is to wind these people off and set them off. Having talked to them in the green room, I don't think that's going to be a real problem. So, first question 
I've asked them to take about five minutes and explain to you all the core concept they hope that the audience will consider throughout this meeting. What is the one thing they really want you to understand right at the beginning? So with that, let me start with Eric. You're on. Wow, five minutes. Okay. Thank you so much for coming, number one. It's very heartening to see so many people come together to talk about something that's difficult to talk about, but ultimately I think we're going to actually have a lot of fun doing this. The two things that I would want to leave you with are both featured in this book, and I swear I'm not going to plug it every five minutes. But um, (laughs) The first idea is this idea that you know, race is one of these things that we all think we know a lot about, uh, but we really don't. Uh, if you've, if you've not studied it, if you've not taken time to sort of delve into how it works in society, how it works, particularly in media, which is my expertise, you may think you know how it works, but that makes you vulnerable sometimes to pitfalls and, uh, ways of thinking that are actually counterproductive to maybe what you want to achieve. And, and part of that is this idea that we all have anecdotes. We all have these moments that we have in our lives where race plays some sort of part, and we think we've learned a lesson from it. But if 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 those a- anecdotes aren't backed up by data, uh, then sometimes you might draw the wrong conclusions or you may not actually understand what happened. And what I do in this book is I have a lot of anecdotes. I've covered media and television for quite a while, but I also try to back it up with data. I also try to look at studies and polls and surveys and uh, you know, as, as much as I can find, as many facts as I can find to, to flesh out some of these issues. One of the things I found, for example, was a really interesting study that was done um, by researchers at Stanford and Yale who found that uh, people of color and white people tend to gauge racial progress in different ways. So white people will tend to, they surveyed like a thousand people, and white people will tend to look at where we are right now and compare it to where we used to be. And people of color will look at where we are right now and compare it to where we should be. So often when we're talking about racial issues, we're looking at the same data, but we're using different yardsticks to judge it. And that's important to understand when it comes to fostering these kind of conversations that we're talking about. So as we go forward, um, let's think about the different yardsticks that we might each be using and whether or not the anecdotes in our life that we're using uh, to come up with these ideas about race in society, whether they're backed up by data. And, and we'll talk more about that as the night goes on. Thanks a lot. Wow. That was quick. I, I didn't realize if I was running. Do I still have time? No, no, no. No, it was good. It was good. It was good. Corey. I probably won't be that quick. I'll try. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. I think you'll see we each have our areas of expertise, and they'll all sort of overlap to form a coherent evening for you. Um, but what I'm going to talk about is... I guess what I would say is the sort of internal cognitive roadblocks that prevent us from maybe being purely rational all the time and finding the truth. And this is bias. So this is what I study. Bias is essentially the tendency for people to interact with the information they confront in a way that favors their own desired beliefs and conclusions. So it's essentially the idea that what you want to believe is true affects what you actually believe is true. And probably an easy metaphor would be to think about sports. Probably you've watched a sporting event with someone um, where you're rooting for different teams and there's a foul maybe. And you're like, oh my gosh, that guy totally fouled my guy. And they're like, no, they didn't. And you can get in a heated fight over it. You saw the exact same play, but you saw completely different things. And the political sphere is really 
probably the most fertile breeding ground for bias because you have the team component like you have with sports. You identify your Republican or a Democrat and people want to fit in with their group. They want to be liked by their group and they'll often sacrifice accuracy so as to fit in. Sometimes it's more important to fit in with your group than to be accurate. Like look at Galileo, what happened to him? <laughs> so it's not entirely irrational to do this, but it also can lead us astray from the truth. Um, another reason is that politics are often central to people's moral identities. And when something is morally relevant, people's emotional attachments to political ideas can prevent them from finding the truth as well. So an example would be if somebody was found same-sex relationships to be highly immoral. It's unlikely you could convince them that same-sex relationships wouldn't be corrosive to society because they would be resistant to that information for their own moral reasons. And the third thing is that and this is maybe something we're going to debate later, but politics are really complicated and the truth is really hard to know. It's really ambiguous a lot of the time what the right thing to believe is. Take an issue like the wage gap between men and women or between black and white people. Many experts who study this, people who devote their lives to this, disagree about how big the gap is. How should we define what the same work is? Is it the same job, the same hours? Is it the same job, the same hours, the same productivity? You can, you can define this a bunch of different ways. And when you have ambiguity, it, it leaves a lot of wiggle room for people to interpret the facts the way they want to. And so this increases bias as well. So I guess I've addressed why, why people are biased in the political domain, how they're biased is that they can either uh, approach information that confirms their beliefs. This is what you hear when people talk about echo chambers or how people might be loyal to certain news networks and avoid other ones. So you can approach information you want to believe, avoid information you don't want to believe, but you can also be highly credulous when you're exposed to information that you like and just you see a headline and you're like, yes, proof that I'm right. But then when it's something you don't like, you might spend more time pouring through the article trying to find a flaw in their reasoning and proving that they're stupid. So people will oftentimes put more time into disproving things they don't want to believe than actually reading the things that they do believe and, and scrutinizing that information. So I guess the last thing, which is probably the biggest question, is can we overcome this tendency in ourselves, and if so, how? And I would say it's really complicated. The advice that I would give is first to acknowledge this tendency in ourselves. There's this hilarious finding in social psychology. It's called the bias blind spot. And what it shows is when you tell people about bias, like I'm telling all of you right now, they're like, aha, that's why my Uncle Jack is so crazy and my neighbor voted for that guy. And they see it in everybody else, but they maintain their own beliefs that they're accurate and unbiased. And I would say that that's not true. We're all biased. It's human nature. It would be really weird if we weren't biased, so let's admit it. And rather than pointing fingers at other, uh, at other people about their flawed reasoning, look at it in ourselves as well. Other things I would suggest is that we, we really want to exercise a lot of intellectual humility. Uh, research shows that even experts, sometimes experts are the most biased people, so nobody's immune to this sort of thing. If you don't find yourself saying, I don't know, or I might be wrong about this that often, you're probably wrong. <laughs> uh, if you see something on your social media that is like right up your alley, be more skeptical of it. Social media is designed, it's tailored to your desires, it knows what you want to read. And so that's a good reason to be skeptical of it. The last thing I'll suggest is a lot of people have a tendency that when they're going to look at information that challenges their beliefs, they find the dumbest thing they can just to prove how stupid the other team is. 
And what you want to do is find the smartest, most trustworthy people you can who disagree with you, and that's how you really challenge yourself. And I think I want to end on a positive note because I just said that human, the human mind is basically wired to be irrational. But one thing we can do is we can, we can value accuracy over tribal loyalty. And like that, there are so many people here tonight tells you that this is actually something that's really important to people. And if we can put more value in that goal, in finding balanced information, um, I think that's how we can come to a more common understanding about what is true about the world. Hey, how are we all doing? Good? Good. My name is Alexius, and I am here with my five minutes to bring you a glimmer of hope. <laughs> Not in a direct uh, uh, contradiction, I guess, to what Kari uh, uh, just said, because all the things Kari said are true. Well, we are hardwired in ways that make it hard for us uh, to accept contradiction. But I also think that we have entered a phase in which the convenient meme, the approach is to presume that facts don't matter anymore at all, that we've given up on the truth that it is, and I shudder, a post-truth era, right? I'm sure some of you may have read this fancy headline in clever editorials. Um, I think that a lot of the time these are angsty liberal commentators not really uh, capable of explaining what is going on in today's America uh, and not taking a step back and thinking about what they're actually saying. Um, and this is, again, not to deny that fact-checking and facts have challenges. I used to present fact-checks once a week on the Italian state broadcaster. Uh, a popular myth, a misperception in Italy was that with the euro, prices doubled overnight when we switched to the euro. Of course, that is a preposterous assumption that would presume inflation of 100%. So we showed all the graphs. Uh, you know, I came prepared, the prices of this, the prices of that, 10 years, this didn't happen, inflation, blah, blah, blah. I, I get off the studio, I, I call my mom. She's like, you know, you looked wonderful on, on TV. Um, uh, thank you, mom. Uh, and then she's like, but you know, those prices, I've been to the market. I saw them double. <laughs> And this is my own mother. She, I, I'm Italian. She's Italian. We love each other. Like there's not, that's not in question. And yet there was doubt in there. And I'll return to this at the end. But despite all this, despite this very human tendency, I think uh, we are exaggerating our, our willingness, our, our stubbornness in front of facts. And because I am a fact checker, I brought you a little bit of evidence. If we can uh, go to a slide. Uh, this is a study published by an MIT researcher last year, several more studies uh, like this, so it's, it's not just a one-off. These researchers asked a, a representative sample of American voters to rate how much they believed four false claims by then-candidate uh, Donald J. Trump. And at the start, it was as partisan and disappointing as you might expect. Uh, Donald Trump's supporters uh, believed a, a falsehood by Donald Trump more on average, about six out of ten, uh, than non-Trump supporting Republicans, the the, the purple dotted line, um, and, and then Democrats, the blue dotted line. Okay, so at the start, Republic, the the people who were primed to believe something because it was their guy, their team, believed it more despite it being false. What happened next might surprise you, as those headlines uh, often promise and rarely deliver. When people were fact-checked, when they were shown reliable evidence uh, that actually these claims are all false, everyone's belief score went down, regardless of their partisan preference. You were a Trump supporter, you were a Democrat, you were a non-Trump-supporting Republican, their beliefs went down. Did the, everyone's ch minds change? No. Did 
everyone suddenly switched to the accurate understanding? No. But that, I think, is to set the bar too high for what we're trying to do when we're talking about accuracy in the public sphere. We need to be able to change some people's minds some of the time. And I think that's a, a healthier approach. And so how do we do that? How do we make sources that people deem more reliable? How do we have conversations that make people more uh, willing to, to, to sort of um, change their mind? With my mom, what I should probably have done is picked up on those very visible single goods that maybe she buys often at the market, said that, hey, actually, pens and espressos and ice cream uh, did double in price over the 10 years. And because you buy them often and you remember the price, that's what that's the, the shortcut that you're taking to presume that it's the case along the line. Instead, what I did was put stuff up there that didn't reflect her uh, everyday reality and didn't leave her a way out that didn't make her feel stupid. So I hope that in this conversation we can talk about ways uh, to encourage others and ourselves, because I, I'm confident that none of us thinks that each of us is uh, imperfect and infallible, to change our minds more. Thank you. Okay, so I, I got a bunch of questions, but let me start with, with one that's been bugging me. So we live in our bubbles, right? We live in our bubbles. We watch the things we want to watch. We tend not to watch the things we don't want to watch. We read the newspapers the way we want to read them or the, the right, right? We live in our bubbles and we tend to get stuck in these feedback loops. Uh, Bill Bishop came here and spoke a number of years ago talking about the sorting of America. Some of you are there probably, right? And how we, even more so, we're living near people that are like us. We're going to the same church or this, whatever it is, we're, we're, we're really, we're not testing ourselves so much. So who has the bigger responsibility, y'all? Who has the bigger responsibility to break through that bubble? Is it individuals or is it journalism or media to actually help us do that? Who's responsible to help us through this? Well, I mean, I would say that both sides have a responsibility here. I don't I don't know if you can I wouldn't say greater than or less than, but one of the things I'm always saying is that as audiences, you have never had more power than you have now. And you may not realize it. But the fact that there um, are so many places to consume media where your every click, your every viewership, uh every time you show up somewhere, it's measured and it's monetized. That gives you power. If you can go on social media, on a, on a Twitter or on Instagram or on a Facebook post and uh, say something that gets picked up by hundreds of thousands of people across the country and eventually forces a network to change what it's doing, which has happened, you have more power than you had 10 years ago when you had to write a letter and hope somebody opened it up and read it. But as Spider-Man says, with great power, comes great responsibility, right? So it puts more of an onus on you to check out all these different places. And when you see a link to a story that has a headline and you agree with, actually click on the link and read the story. My big pet peeve is when I put out links and somebody comes to one of my social media platforms and asks a question that's in the store. And I just, I just tweet three words, read the store, right? So part of it is just doing some basic stuff. Read the story, you know, apply a little critical thinking to it. We're going to have to up people's media literacy a little bit, which is what I do here. Believe it or not, I talk a lot about how media works, and it will help you understand things. Uh, understand a little bit how the media outlets you consume make their money, 
because that's important. Now, journalists have to figure out a way to break into what I call your media ecology. You have a media ecology where you get up and you consume, a, you know, you watch your TV show or you listen to your radio show and you go throughout your day and you consult all these different media platforms. And that's a media ecology that we're all trying to figure out how to break into and get you to make a regular part of your media consumption diet. At NPR, we're trying to figure out how do we get you to make us a part of your regular media diet. So part of what we're trying to do is to figure out how to break into that bubble and become a consistent part of your media consumption diet. So we're already working on that, but you got to do a little work too. And between the two of us, hopefully we figure it out. That's really something that I guess uh, leads into my answer to the question, which would probably be that it's on the people. We create the demand for the news. So if we want balanced, self-critical information, they're going to deliver that. If NPR wants, they want your business. They want your attention. And if you're always clicking on things that are, so there, there's some recent research that shows that fake news travels faster and further than true news. Why? Because it's more shocking and people want to believe it's true and they click on it and they share it because everybody wants to be the person to spread the new shocking piece of information. If you minimize the demand for that by not spreading fake news yourself, that's shocking to get a lot of likes on Twitter and maybe you will get a lot of likes on Twitter, Facebook or whatever your preferred platform is. If if you change the demand and you, you, you really want to read news that's going to present both sides of the argument, that's going to be self-reflective and that's going to at least appear balanced, then you force the media to change. And that might be the only way to do it because it's a commercial enterprise. They want people to click. So whatever you're clicking on, that's what they're gonna, that's what they're gonna do. I'll say, I'll say two things. So, First, I think the media it doesn't have a role just to break uh, sort of the bubbles in society, but also its own bubble, right? And so uh, last weekend, I, I watched in dismay as uh, excellent reporters consumed uh, a day and a half uh, debating the White House Correspondents' Dinner and what to do about a comedian. And honestly, it was the maybe because I'm foreign, I don't know, but the most in, uninteresting, irrelevant piece of uh, uh, time. And if I am a, a disaffected media consumer and I see that, I'm like, these guys aren't covering the shit I want to talk about. Like, this is, what is this? And excuse me, I promised I wasn't going to swear. Um, the second thing I'll say missing from the equation is social networks and platforms, right? Uh, because of the enormous amount of information that they provide, they kind of uh, short circuit our capacity to, to sort of even see the whole picture, right? Of course, we always have had a tendency to group among like-minded people and watch the same stuff. But of course, on uh, sort of the supermarket checkout, you had rubbish tabloids and, and uh, weeklies alongside good stuff. But what's happening? now or what has happened now is that if on um, imagine this analogy that if you are at that checkout counter and you see whatever the examiner whatever the the, the rubbish thing is called that says aliens are eating people all the time um, national inquirer national inquirer thank you if you by any chance watch it a couple of times while you're you know just passing your stuff then it multiplies so there's more of it on the counter and then if you pick it up once it appears on stacks and stacks all over the place until you can't actually reach uh, the person who the cashier this is how facebook works 
right? Every like, every share, every comment that you do to one thing uh, will bring you more of that stuff. And so there is a responsibility for the social networks, for the big tech platforms to change. I think they are changing. We're working with them. Uh, but they have to be a, a crucial part of this conversation. Yeah, I, 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 would, I would say before you pass along a tweet or a link, just click on the link and read the story and ask yourself, does this really make sense to me? And I bet... 30% of the crappy news that gets passed along, the fake news that gets passed along, would probably drop off. My pet peeve, though, is referring to the media in a, as a collective. Because the fact of the matter is there are so many different media platforms out there, and they each have different uh, agendas in terms of making money, in terms of galvanizing an audience. They each have different objectives, and you have to have a little bit of an understanding of, of, of what each one wants to really be able to consume their product uh, in, in a way that you that you want. Uh, in, in my book, I talked about how when most people talk about the media, what they really mean is cable television. And and every excess of you know the, the media does this, and I can you're talking about CNN and Fox and MSNBC. The media does this. You know, maybe people might occasionally be referring to newspapers, but most of the time they're talking about cable television. Well, cable television draws viewers through conflict. So it's always about presenting a conflict that is engaging and that is frightening and that will make you stay engaged. Now, print outlets make their money in a different way, and some web platforms make their money in yet another different way and attract an audience in a different way. So... Part of it is we gotta we gotta stop talking about the media as this collective that acts with one mind because it's often the platforms operate very differently and they feature material uh, for different reasons. You know, I'm not convinced though. I mean, I hear that last point, but we're fighting our tribalism. I mean, I'm sorry, but you when you check out, you're not looking at an encyclopedia. There, people are buying National Enquirer, right? And I remember a number of years ago, I was talking to a television producer, who, and I said, why am I watching about some random crime in Oregon, you know, in Tallahassee's news market? Why is that? And the answer was, because that's what people want to see. Because well, that's what part of, it, part of it is the answer, that's what people want to see. Also, it's, an easy, it's easy for them to get that, grab that story off of a, a feed yeah. that they get and, and show it to you. Also, there's video, probably. Right. right. Oh, absolutely. Right. So, so you're seeing, you're seeing, you're hearing about some car crash in China right. because they have video of it. You know that. <laughs> it, they, that's why I'm saying when you understand how local television makes money, right, then you understand why they're showing you that stuff. Okay, but so we're fighting. The, this is a mountain we're talking about here to try to climb up and over. I, I don't. I, I really don't think. It's, what, what, it's, how it's how that. can you when the whole when the world seems to be seems to be becoming more tribal isn't this just nice talk that we're going to we're going to actually communicate with each other and go check facts Corey, <laughs> what do you mean by nice talk like we just say we're going to do this and we're not actually going to do it no we're yeah that's exactly right we <laughs> yeah we are we are civil people in this room right. and we enjoy meaningful conversation and 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 we can actually sit and disagree this is a bubble uh, what's I, happening out there yeah, so this is something that can happen where you kind of create this new narrative for yourself as like an informed citizen and I'm the person who does the fact checking and I'm the one who knows everything. 
And this is really hard to, this really, it's really hard to, to get over because it, this is, this is human nature. This is what makes people feel good. You want to feel like you're the one who's doing everything right and the people who agree with you are the ones doing things right and point fingers at everyone else. And it, it's, it's a struggle and there's not a lot of, work showing at how effective it can be to get people to sort of overcome their own bias. And that's why I think it's really, it, you have to take it the responsibility as an individual because most people aren't going to do it. In fact, almost no one's going to do it. And it's, it's easy to fall into the same tendencies as everyone else because why should they get to have biased information and you're, you're the one who asked, why, why, why do you have to concede their points, but they're never going to concede yours? Which will happen. Why do you say, I see what you're saying on this, but can you see me on that? And they're not going to see you on that. Uh, and that can be really, really frustrating. So I, I, I would say that maybe we are climbing a mountain and I don't have any like brilliant solutions to this problem. I would say, I would say to your point on the media is that people get viewers for different reasons. Like they have different, different audience, so they're gonna appeal to their audience's desired values or beliefs, let's say. But everyone's trying to make money, right? So everyone wants an audience. So they're gonna do what they can do to get you to listen to them, and they'll use different strategies. I would say for that reason alone, it's fair to be skeptical of almost any media. You wanna see where their sources are coming from. Is it coming from science? If you go to the science, is there a debate about the conclusion or does everyone in science agree on it? Uh, scientific consensus is something to consider as well. And that's kind of where I fit into this equation because I'm not in the media. But yeah, it's really challenging and I, I don't know what the future is going to look like, whether things are going to get worse before they get better or they're just going to get worse forever. Or if slowly we can actually, uh, one by one change our our own values and goals and try to be more fair to other people who disagree with us. Alexios? Yeah, I'll say three things. Yes, it's a mountain to climb, but I think it's also at this point become a, a moral imperative. It's become a, a battle to fight to say that we care about facts in the public sphere. And if we do believe that, then we should sort of campaign for them, advocate for them, make the case for why evidence-based public policy makes lives better. Um, so it's a hard, maybe it's a hard one, but it's it's a fundamental one. And I am hardened, I'm going to keep being the, uh, the optimistic one, I'm hardened by booming traffic to fact-checking websites in the United States, but also around the world, to increase the membership and uh, financial support, so people are both watching stuff. When NPR did a live fact check of the debates last election season, it was their most popular web product ever. PolitiFact attracted 115 million page views last year. I don't know how familiar you are with how many page views fact checking websites take. That's way more than ever before. So that's on, on sort of, yes, we need to fight this fight. I think it's a, it's a, there's a broad coalition for it. I think if you talk to librarians, to high school teachers, they are desperate to do this kind of stuff in the classroom. So I think there's a lot of demand for this. I don't think we're a small group. I don't think it's just the people in this room. Second thing I know from research, but that's just one study, and I'd love to see more, uh, is that it seems like friends can correct one another more than strangers can. So the one study I'm thinking about found that on Twitter, if it's someone you follow and follows you back, uh, who says, actually, that's false, here's a fact check or whatever else, you are more likely to engage and, and sort of step back from your falsehood. 
this doesn't mean go on Twitter and correct your friends. <laughs> this means how many times, how many times at like a, a family dinner, a Sunday lunch, whatever, you disengage when you hear that cousin you see that one time a month or that uncle or whoever or your mom or whoever when they say something that's false but you don't want to pick up that fight. I don't say fight, <laughs> but I say don't disengage, right? Because that's where we can make a difference. And by sort of letting all these things slide every time, uh, we're, we're not acting where we can be most effective. And where there is already a bond of actual emotional uh, uh, trust, and so where you c- should be able to say uncomfortable stuff. Yeah, I would say that's kind of, I'll shout out to Liz, I don't know where she is right now, but that's kind of the brilliance of this whole concept is, if you can like start with a relationship with someone that you like them and you trust them and you think they're smart, then you might take them more seriously when they disagree with you than some random person on Twitter who you have no idea who they are. So I think that that is a really important thing to to try to use in your own life if you can find relationships with people who disagree with you but you really trust. That's uh, That can be really helpful. And the, the I guess I want to hop onto your optimism train too and that I think that we have terms like fake news that go viral and that you pretty much read about, or at least I read about political bias every day. I think maybe we're all reading about it. It just shows that people care about this stuff a lot and so yeah, I don't think it's just people in this group and if we can make this the cool group to be part of, then um, more people might value that. Yeah, I, I would also say that creating a safe space where people can share ideas is important. They talked about the the stuff from my book that uh, has become sort of the ground rules for how to have this conversation uh, that's also in here. That's that's the primary focus of every one of those rules is to set up a place where people can sort of reveal themselves and admit to being wrong and admit um, that they may have had thoughts that, you know, you might consider socially unacceptable in some way. Uh, because we've all had them and we've all been there and, and, and we're all human. And, and what we're really trying to do is connect with each other in a different way and find a way to sort of rid our connections of this, you know, these prejudices, these biases, these stereotypes, these falsehoods that limit all of us. And once we can, um, really reveal ourselves and have an honest conversation where everyone's respected, and every, everyone's point of view is valued, that's when you really make progress. And so, and I'm, I'm very optimistic that those conversations can happen. What if instead you told people that they should be more comfortable with unsafe spaces? Like, be more comfortable with having conversations they don't want to have and realizing that when you disagree with people, there's going to be conflict. Well, here's and, the th- and well, being okay with that. Well, when I when I try to put together these conversations, I'm not saying you don't challenge each other, and I'm not saying you don't talk about things that are difficult to talk about. But what I hate about social media is that it's so abusive. Is that you know someone says something, and right away somebody steps up, and and one you know I'm gonna I'm gonna unload all my pet peeves here now, but. <laughs> Um, you'll, you know, I'll be on Twitter and I'll be having a conversation, uh, uh, an interaction with someone else. Then a third person will step up who has not been privy to our conversation and will say something that's a, that's kind of borderline abusive and pugnacious and, and that reveals that they don't really know what they're talking about. And, and, and I, and I sort of say to myself, well, where did that come from? You know, where did that way of, you know, there's a way to enter that conversation respectfully. You can still challenge. 
you can still say, hey, I'm not sure I agree, but you don't have to say, you're an idiot, and here's why you're wrong, and here's what I'm saying, and oh, by the way, you know, we already talked about that five messages ago, but you didn't read it, you know? So, so I, so I think there's a way to have the conversation in, in which everybody's point of view is respected, but you're still talking about tough things, you're still challenging each other, and you may come to the end of that conversation and say, I still don't agree with you, but you feel like you had a, a respectful conversation about it, and you still respect that other person when you're done. And that, to me, is the important part. When, and we need to get to the table stuff, but we're starting getting into some cool stuff here. So, so let me pivot a little bit to race. And, and this whole discussion of facts, how is it more complicated when the discussion involves some aspect of race? How do we navigate that world? Or does it matter? Does does that give a lens that we have to work through? Well, I I think the two ways in which it gets more complicated. Number one, um, there is this sense that how you talk about race reflects on on who you are as a person, reflects on your morality as a person, right? So if so, if you reveal yourself to have uh, prejudices or stereotypes, or that um, you have a way of thinking that's considered outmoded then suddenly you're a bigot or suddenly you're a jerk. And, and so that makes it hard to have these conversations because people won't be honest about what they think. I, I, uh, I, I did one of these things, you know, where I talk about my book and, and this, um, this uh, middle-aged white guy raised his hand and said, you know, I, I really want to ask you, like, why is there a National Association for the Advancement of Colored People when there's no National Association for the Advancement of White People? Now... Yeah, I know black folks. We heard that before. I know. But but the thing was, the guy was actually, I, I thought he was earnestly answer, asking the question. He really wanted to know. It wasn't some sort of gotcha BS nonsense from somebody trying to trap me. In a, and, and, and so I said to him, you know, I, I appreciate, and it was an, an event like this, a bunch of people. Um, and he knew that most of the people didn't necessarily agree with the uh, question he was asking. And I sort of said, well... You know, I appreciate the fact that you had the courage to ask that question. And what I'll say is, you know, when white people have had 400 years of oppression where their humanity and their family and their history has been torn from them, then they might need a, an advancement for the uh, association for the advancement of white people, too. But right now, black people are, are trying to come back from that, and white people have not had that disadvantage. Uh, and so we, we, we had an actual conversation about it. You know, which I thought was was really important. So that so that's the first thing. The second thing is that when it comes to issues of race, facts are tough to come by. It, it is sometimes it is hard to prove something or hard to find out the real truth behind something. You know, does structural? I mean, the big question for me, and I think for a lot of people who are trying to talk about race in society today, is does structural racism exist? And if it does exist, how do we deal with it? Uh, in my book, I quote a study, and there have been many others, that show that 50% of white people think that they are just as likely to be discriminated against because of their race as non-white people. Now, if you look at other metrics, arrest rates, education, family wealth, income, that is absolutely not true. It just isn't. But a lot of people believe it. 
right? And, and, and I don't know that there's one fact you can point to to say that's absolutely wrong, even though I can point to a bunch of facts that sort of indicate that it's not right, right? So, so, so how do you nail down the case enough? to solve this really important question which affects how we talk about policing and education and employment and housing and all these other things, health outcomes, does structural racism exist? That's a tough fact to prove. Yeah, um, and that's something, and I'll, I'll maybe call out both the liberal and conservative side on this one because I think you're absolutely right that so often it's really hard to know why something happened, like take one of any police shootings. Would that same thing have happened if it was a white person? And in any given case, we can't, thankfully, we can't run the the other condition and find out if it would have happened. So you have to look at other sources of information to try to determine, but race is now part of the conversation and people are already upset and there are already a lot of emotions and it makes it really hard for people to have these conversations because the emotions are high and there's high ambiguity, which again, this is these are the things that contribute to people being really biased. And so I think this is also something you were talking about. What's so important in these conversations is to avoid ad hominem attacks. How can I get your information and how can you get my information if you're calling me a racist or if you know I'm saying that you hate police and you know pe- people can accuse people of all sorts of horrible things, but that should be irrelevant to the discussion of, hey, what happened here? And I think avoiding that, and it's hard because people might do that to you and you have to be the one to take the high road and not engage and say, hey, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this. Uh, And it can be really, really hard, but we take personal responsibility and then hopefully these conversations that need to happen can happen. Very quick. Very quick. see Steve uh, pulling eyes. But... um, Facts can be extremely hard to pin down, as, as Eric said, in race. Uh, I think the flip side is let's n- avoid saying things with certainty that, that we don't know are sure, uh, because when you do get them wrong, then the damage is lasting. I'll make two examples. Uh, the AP, about a month ago, ran a story of Linda Brown's death, uh, Linda Brown, obviously the famous Supreme Court uh, uh, ruling, with the wrong photo. It wasn't the right black woman. Okay, and so uh, a Philadelphia journalist uh, uh, reached out to me, wrote the piece. Uh, she's black herself, and she was justifiably furious. Right? It, what what kind of uh, uh, sort of library uh, does this, where you know one black woman is like another? Right? Uh, in the same way, during breaking news situations, one of the fastest things people search for is the race of the shooter, of the attacker, of whatever else it is, and that's that mistake. That misattributed person has happened with the Toronto shooting, for one. And George Zimmerman. And yeah, it just immediately colors your perception of what the event uh, was. And so let's just not get the facts wrong, even if we're not entirely sure what the fa- right facts are. All right, that's a segue. <laughs> and we're, we're running your. This is the introduction into the table exercise you all are going to do. And Alexios is going to lead us through this. But first, I'm going to show you how hard it is to identify facts. And we're going to use our panelists as a way of showing that we, we can all be ridiculous at this. So it's okay to totally miss the mark. 
because I suspect I suspect they will. So is I'm going to ask: safe, Is this a safe space? Yeah. Is this a safe space? <laughs> I, I suddenly feel the need for a safe space. <laughs> I don't think it's fair. I'm the only fact checker on here, yeah. and uh, my reputation is more in the line. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to ask them two questions, actually three, but the two right immediately, and they're just going to respond to them, and we're, we're going to talk about how they come to grips with the answers, because that's about what you all are going to do in a few minutes. All right, so the first question is, what is the population of Canada? Do, 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 do. So obviously some... Facts are easily discoverable. Oh, I'm sorry. They can't go to their phones for the first two. And you will not be able to go to your phones either, but, but Alexios will explain that. Okay. How are we doing here? Alexios, how many, what is the population of Canada? I mean, I'm gonna, I worked for the UN, so I hope, I hope that this didn't go too poorly. 20 million. 20 million. Okay. I said 100 million. Sorry, Paul, my Canadian friend. <laughs> okay. Right and. I swear we didn't look on each other's paper. Maybe you looked at mine, but I didn't look at yours. 100 million. Okay. The answer is 36.2 million. Wow. Just to give you a sense. Alexios I mean, wins. This is tough stuff. Well, that one's, that one's <laughs> fairly easy. You can check it. By 300. <laughs> I figured a third of America. Do, That's what I figured. <laughs> do, yeah, do, yeah, exactly. Do not diss the panelists. That's not appropriate. Okay. The second question is harder and this one is more meaningful, actually. So what percentage of elected Florida state legislators are black, white, and Latino? Percentage of Florida state legislators, Florida representatives and Florida senators, what percentage are white, black, and Latino? You can take this, too, at home if you'd like. All right, so, Eric. 88% white, 5% black, 7% Latino. All right. I was kind of similar. I didn't peak. <laughs> I said 82% white, 10% black, 8% Latino. All right. I was a little more optimistic. <laughs> I said 70% white, 8% black, and 22% Latino. Okay. This is the. These are the answers. It is 70% white. Oh. 16% black. Dang. And 13% Latino. Wow. wow. Okay, now listen to this. The population of Florida, uh -huh. just to give you a sense, the population of Florida is 60% white, 17% black, and 20% Latino. Hmm. So actually an underrepresentation in the Florida legislature, Latinos are underrepresented. So, but let me real quickly just ask you all, what, how would you handle that kind of question? What, where would you go? How would you, how would you address it to get the right answer? I, I would go to Google and I would put the I would put the question in. I mean seriously, I would go to Google and I would put the question in, and then I would look to see if there was a news story uh, from a reputable newspaper that had those totals, and then I would also look to see if uh, either the state or the federal census had done any had, had produced those figures. All right, all right. I would go to Wikipedia. <laughs> um, no, Wikipedia is actually pretty good a lot of the time. Yeah, a lot of government. As long as you click on the footnote right. to check where they got the, the information. Sometimes it's like from 1982 and you're like, huh? Yeah, Google. And uh, for a question like that, you'd want to use like a government source, census or something like that. A news article you could do 
but then you'd probably want to check where yeah, they Yeah, you want to see where they got the information yeah. from, yeah. So for the Canadian population, I would have gone on the World Bank data bank. Population data, all that stuff, great database, free. And for the Florida legislator uh, statistics, probably the Florida legislator site, hopefully. And yeah. at worst, count them. But, uh, but yeah. Okay. Thank you. Alexios is going to lead you through what we're going to ask you to do at your table. It's going to look a lot like that with probably the same amount of certainty and accuracy that they had. All right. You ready to play? All right. You have uh, uh, five cards of different colors on your table. Yeah. For each of the questions, there's a color. So right on the right color, the answer, your guess for that question. And then throw it in the pile in the middle by color. Okay? Then choose someone in your table who's going to be a respectful person and not laugh at stupid answers. That person will moderate you guys to find a consensus answer. Okay? There are two premises and one fundamental rule. No cell phones. <laughs> so turn them upside down. The point here is not to do... This isn't a trivia quiz, uh, nor is it a gotcha exercise. It's really about what we were talking about before. How do we reach consensus when we have a diversity of facts? Um, so maybe one of you knows because they work in that field, or maybe one of you knows because uh, your kid at school had to do a exercise. And so how do we determine which source is more reliable among us? Do, 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 do. So let's start with the top. What percentage of college graduates among U.S. adults over the age of 25 was 34%. How did we do? How are we looking? All right. We're feeling pretty good. How many presidents of the United States were called Franklin? Name them. All right. A bunch of you got two. Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Franklin Pierce. All right. Really? Franklin Pierce? All right. Let's pivot to a few of the to the race questions. So, what percentage of professional sports employees in the United States are black? The answer is a perhaps surprisingly low 5%. How did we do on that number? What? Let's see. Wait, wait, wait. Let's see. Sign a show of hands. How many people said somewhere between 0 and 10%? All right. So, relatively few. How many of you were between 10 and 20%? All right. How many of you said 20% or more? Yep. All right. Uh, do you want to, because this is an Eric you, you, uh, Dickens you know, special. Yeah, I provided this one. Although the, the answer comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The reason why that seems to happen is because people think about the most popular sports. They think about basketball and football and baseball, and they forget about all the other professional sports where there are hardly any people of color as athletes, let alone coaches, umpires and related jobs where even in the NFL um, you don't have a lot of diversity. So, Also the most visible people, right? The stars. And this is something that happens all the time and we'll see with the next questions. There's such a thing called the familiarity effect or the availability heuristic. The more we see something, the more we generalize off of it. Um, all right. Next questions and we're getting into more um, uh, delicate topics. What percentage of white Americans aged 18 and older have used marijuana and what percentage of black Americans aged 18 and older? The percentages are 51.9% for white Americans and 46.6% for black Americans. Who had more, a higher percentage for white Americans than they did for black Americans? 
Okay. About half. And then the final question is, what percentage of the federal prison population is white and what percentage of the federal prison population is black? So the numbers as of 20, March 2017 of the Bureau of Prisons, I think it was, is 58.4% white and 37.9% black. How did we do? Well, I see some nodding. Besides the answers, we'd like to hear from you, was it harder to reach consensus on the race-related questions? Was there more diversity of opinions around the race-related questions? No pun intended. Was there... <laughs> was there... I'm curious, who, who, who got it right? Who got it right? Okay, how'd, how'd you guys figure it out? Like, we actually came to a consensus pretty quickly because they listened to what I had to say as far as my own personal, my own personal thoughts and my experiences and the fact that I did do a little bit of, um, I did a perspective on, on it during my master's and so. Ah. So in one person, we had the combination of anecdote and data, right? Okay. You, you, you guys got it? Somebody here? You got it? How'd, how'd you, how'd you figure it out? Well, uh, I kind of cheat because we have this conversation at home fairly often. Uh-huh. So we'd already looked at this and our conversation is usually around this disparity between the population in the prison versus the population as a whole. It's, it's a higher percentage of African Americans who are being incarcerated for various reasons than there are whites. And so that kind of, kind of. Yeah, that's, all, that's, that's always, that's always the, uh, the tough issue to get at when you talk about race. So when you're talking about incarceration, for example, black people are incarcerated to a larger percentage. If 36% of the federal prisoners are black and we're only 12% of the population, right, then, then we are getting over incarcerated, but we're still not more than half of the actual people who are in federal prison. Uh, and that, that's something when you talk about poverty statistics, for example. I, I have a, a version of a test like this that I give. And one of the questions is about how many millions of people who are de- defined as poor are black and how many are white. Uh, I won't ask you to name the numbers, but how many people would say that that's an even number? Same amount of black people and white people who are poor who would say that? Not percentage-wise, just in, in terms of actual numbers. Say like 5 million white, 5 million black. Who would say that's even money? And who would say that there's 30% black and 70% white? Th- that's much closer to the number. The number of white people who are poor is twice the number. Twice the number. So even though poverty disproportionately percentage-wise affects black people, when you look at the actual numbers of people who are poor almost twice as many poor people are white. And so when it comes time to have this discussion about legislation tied to poverty programs and public assistance and things like that, affirmative action. Affirmative action programs often help veterans and white single mothers as much or more as, as they help black people or non-white people, right? So, so we gotta, we, we, we gotta alter our perception of what actual numbers are and what percentages are if we want to get at some of these misconceptions and, and prejudices that we have about who's poor and who needs public assistance and who uses drugs and all that stuff. Is there a difference in the ratio in the state prison system versus the federal prison system? I don't know. I haven't done that research. Um, probably <laughs> what you see is at the state level, it's 
mostly violent offenders. And then at the federal level, you have um, a lot of drug traffickers. So to the extent that there are demographic differences in the types of crimes committed, I, su I suspect that it would be slightly different, but I can't tell you exactly how, but that's a good question. Bureau of Justice Statistics, you can look it up and find out when you get home. <laughs> uh, I have another question for the audience. Did anyone who got one of the three race-related questions sort of terribly wrong? <laughs> and by wrong, I mean just inaccurate. It's not like a moral judgment. We don't need to have these numbers yes. on the back of our hands, right? We're we not can, saying don't we be are afraid. racist. No. <laughs> we are not. Necessarily. <laughs> no, I'm serious, though. Like, we, we can and do look these things up because we don't know them. Uh, but did someone who got a number uh, way wrong want to I, share it why? It could be catastrophically how? wrong in either direction, right? Right, so. right. Do you have a feel? Is that you over there? We're getting, a, we're getting a mic to you. This Hello? is the Oprah Winfrey part of our presentation. <laughs> I have a question, actually. So for number three, what is what is considered related positions? Because my, my number, honestly, was like in the 80s. And I'm a little shocked. But I don't know if maybe this is because I have a different perception. That's, uh, that's a number from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So that is professional athletes, coaches, umpires, and related positions. I think related positions are like trainers and bat boys and things like that. You know, who whoever is sort of supporting the professional athletes. And and to be fair and honest, all of us were stumped by that. Like that was the shocking number. Sure. We sure. set you up. We did. I that that number does set you up a little bit, but I also think that people don't understand that the most popular sports may be dominated by non-white athletes. But even when you look at the people who surround them, when you look at the umpires and you look at the coaches and you look at the trainers and you look at the people who provide the, the bats or provide yes. whatever, that, that diversity level goes way down. So even though we assume that many of our professional sports are quite diverse, in fact, the athlete core may be diverse but the rest of them are not. And then when you think about golf or you think about car racing or you think about, you know, there's, there's, there's many professional sports that are, that are not even diverse in terms of the athletes who compete in them. I mean, do this exercise. Count sort of roughly in your, in your, in your head or in a piece of napkin or whatever. Uh, how many sports you follow? And like just an average, how many no for, for real? How many players on those teams? And even if you follow like even if you're a sports fiend and you follow like 20 different sports, you're still gonna know or be aware of about a thousand, two thousand people, right? Over a grand total of 350,000. So we're we're sort of oversampling something that we that we see a lot of. I was. By the way, I'm speaking grandiosely here. I had no clue. Um, so it's just, it's just sometimes we need to check. Anyone else? I was very convinced that I was right, that I'm always convinced that I'm right. That's probably my first problem. Um, that the percentage of black people that were incarcerated in federal prisons was higher. And that was because I feel like uh, the system I often would judge is slanted, and because I had that in the back of my head, even though my table tried in consensus to tell me that, well, if you look at the percentage of how many white people there are in the U.S. and black people, I was like, no, it's stacked against them. That's I'm right, you're wrong. So I was really convinced that that number was supposed to be significantly higher 
black percentage. And you know, some of this is also the fr- the percentage framing, right? If we had said rather than the percentage of the prison population, the percentage of the white population and black population, those numbers would have shocked would have that honest to god shock factor that this maybe doesn't doesn't quite have. Thank you for sharing. Uh, also, Keith, I, I, I would point out two other things. Number one, we're talking about the federal prison population, which is diff- very different than what people think of when they think of people in jail. And the second thing is that there's been a lot of well-meaning journalism about the problems with incarceration of people of color, and I think that can push you to think. Um, there, there's one another question that I put on my test um, that asked, are there more black males in jail than in college? True or false? Are there more black males in jail or in college? College is right. College is right. Now, part of that is that there was a flawed study that came out years ago that got a lot of publicity, and then a professor at a different university uh, went out and found a bunch of universities that hadn't been a part of that original study and included them all and found that the numbers were very different. So well-meaning journalists did stories on the first thing, and then people who wanted to affect that issue went out and talked about it and tried to be activists about it, as you would expect. But then it also put this narrative out there that wasn't true, right? So so sometimes we have these ideas for very understandable and well-meaning reasons, but it's still, in, a, in, a, in essence, kind of fake news. So. And that's that's something that I kind of wanted to point out, too, is that our information is constantly updating in the scientific community and in the media. And so I think this is why it's a good reason to sort of be humble in your opinions, because maybe you were right. Maybe you read a really good article by, about yeah, a really lady, good be sci- humble. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> a really good like scientific article. But it was done five years ago. And since then, the scientific community has decided, no, that's probably not true. We did all these other studies. And that so can I ask you a question? Yes, you may. What's the deal with coffee? Is it is does it it's is it healthy or is it not? No, I, like I can definitively tell you one. there's no argument on this one. It's good for you. And people always give it. No, I'm I'm ser- I'm maybe I'm being Who biased. Who says coffee's admit, good for you? But I I conducted a study where I needed to find facts about coffee, and I did a lot of research on it. Really, and I had no it idea. Has pretty much across the board positive benefits for you and almost no negative ones unless you have like five to six cups a day. Oh, oh, that's that's a problem then. So one to two, it's good for <laughs> you. It reduces my your risk of all kinds of diseases. So drink drink all the coffee you want, up to four cups. <laughs> well, the young lady who spoke, she said exactly what I would have said because I, and I think it's because of what we read in the media and what I, we discussed, you know, just mm-hmm. our only our own biased opinion that I felt it was the flip, that there were 60 percent black versus 40 percent white. And I think it's because of what you hear a lot in, in terms of conversation and the fact that it's disproportionate. So it has to be more blacks than more white. I mean, just based on what you hear and read. So this has really opened up my eyes to do some more fact-finding and read the footnotes. So I'm learning from this. this And, and you know, one of the things she talked about was um, we're affected by what we want to be true and what our priorities are, right? So if we're concerned about the over-incarceration of people of color, then we're more likely to believe the, the material that suggests it would be 60 versus 40. Like, I felt all my answers... That, and you saw I got both of them wrong. <laughs> the questions that he asked me all fed into my cynicism about uh, about race. 
and, and society. So. Right, and that's important that you're not necessarily morally wrong that you have these, it's not morally bad that you have these biases, but if you want to have conversations with people and come to some sort of common understanding of the truth, then it's good to maybe let those down and be more open to other information. Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, your question about coffee, I've been a nutritionist for 35 years, and I write for the Tallahassee Democrat on Tuesdays on health and fitness, and uh, what she said is actually true scientifically. So <laughs> I want to give you one up on that. And the other thing I wanted to say is, with all the things you're saying, is uh, perception is reality. And I think we can boil it down a lot of times that the way people perceive things is reality for them. So when they get their news, a lot of times, you know, whether, whether they don't fact check, et cetera, et cetera, the perception is the most important part. So, so to convince people that it's not, you know, reality for them, it's their perception. So you got to get beyond that. Thank you. Yeah. And see, consensus right there. Consensus. I love it. Um, although I will say, I will say one thing that, that worries me about our current situation, uh, as far as fake news goes, is that perception isn't always reality. In fact, perception often isn't reality. And I'm afraid that it's going to take some huge calamity to wake us up to the fact that we need to, to value facts, right? It, 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 in a way, it took the, the Great Recession to wake us up to the reality of our economic system. And how many people lost jobs? How many people lost their entire net worths? How many people were ruined in that? So, so part of what I think we're trying to do is wake people up to that absent this huge calamity that forces everybody to disregard propaganda and prejudice and pay attention to facts. My uh, comment is very much parallel earlier one. I did overestimate the number of prisoners, uh, Americans of African descent. And I'd like to get back to some comments that several people have made up here about the media. And I think that's because that uh, uh, broadcast media, for instance, very much uh, zeroes in on some of these issues facing uh, Americans of Af African descent in prison. Uh, I repeat it, you know, over and over see uh, programs, particularly uh, television shows on this topic, and caused me to be pretty far off on it. As I listen to the discussion on, on question five, I don't think the number is what's important. And I think that the way that we synthesize information is, is, is problematic. And I'm not, I'm not blaming anyone on the stage, but I think that you guys are kind of feeding into this and it, it doesn't bother me, but whatever. It's not that it's 37% black or 58% white, so it's something to champion. It's the simple fact that if we're 12% of the population and 40% of the people incarcerated, then the news media hasn't gotten it wrong, and it is a horrible problem. The other thing is this. As we leave here tonight and go to whatever community that we tend to go to, it seems as if the people in my community are going to get you know, arrested three, four times more than the people in some other people's community. So the way that we synthesize that information matters. you know. And I don't think that you should turn around. I mean, when we turn around and say clap because there's more black men in college than in prison, the fact that that's the question is the problem. That's all. Yeah, so what, what I would say to that is that's, that's a perfect demonstration of how you can use the same information to make two different conclusions. So what he said is true. Black people are far overrepresented um, in prison relative to the percentage of the population they make up. That statistic's also true. And 
I don't think the goal of this is to be like, yay, there aren't as many black people in prison as we thought. So you could, you could look at this, you could look at this a couple of different ways. You could say, wow, my perception was off. I assumed that more black people be in prison than white people and I was wrong about that. But you could also be like, wow, that discrepancy is more than I would have estimated as well. So you want to think about all of the information together and it's so hard to synthesize it all at once. But yeah, you, you bring up a really good point that two people can look at the same fact and come home with two completely different conclusions. Yeah. So when I was initially talking about how we use different yardsticks to to judge racial progress or racial problems, I, I stopped before talking about this idea that for people of color, this survey found that racial issues were a security goal. They were as important as keeping your family safe or putting food on your table. But they found that for the white respondents to their poll, that uh, racial issues were what we call a nurturance goal, something you do to make your community a better place, something you do uh, to make your your town or your county or your neighborhood nicer, but it's not quite as important as a security goal, right? So, so some of how we're judging these numbers is wrapped up in, are we seeing these as security goals? Are we seeing these as nurturance goals? And, and what does that mean that different members of our group are seeing things in different ways? The other thing I would suggest is that it's possible to hold two ideas in your head at the same time about this issue. To say that over-incarceration is a problem for black people, but to also say to people who want to view over-incarceration as a black thing, it is not just a black thing. Because there are, proportionally, percentage-wise, there's more white people in, in these prisons. So when people advocate for better safety, better conditions, they're not just trying to say black people or non-white people, you know, you go to white people and say, hey, members of your tribe are a part of this too. So it's, it, it's a way to sort of say that we're all in this fight in a way that maybe you didn't think we were. And I right? think, I think I'll be the conservative devil's advocate here, which I have to be sometimes, and say that we're not saying that like necessarily the entire prison system is wrong and that some people obviously have done horrible things and should be in jail. However, we know that you can take a black person or a white person who committed similar crimes and they're more likely to go to prison or serve a longer sentence. And then you can take issues that probably a lot of people would agree on. Um, and I actually got in an argument, not an argument, we talked about it, um, my friend Paul, about like, if people get caught with weed in their pocket, like, are those people going to prison? And for the most part, they don't, but some people do, and it does affect black people and white people. And so it's something, when, when we're talking about what we care about in the carceration system, if we want to care about getting people out who really didn't do anything so bad, that's nonviolent crimes that are relatively minor, that would affect both black people and white people, and everyone can care about it together, and we can have the same goals. Yeah, final... I, I do want to go back to your original premise about what is fake news and what is not news. James Comey, who I love his book, and everybody should read it, he talks about those who believe in fake news as having committed bias, meaning they look at news... They have a construct already in their head of what the truth is, and they pick out what they think fits into their paradigm, right? And I think that's really what's happening today. And that's why we need to kind of pay attention to what's going on. 
I mean, I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. I was raised Pentecostal, Church of God. You can imagine in my family, I'm arguing with them every day in a loving way, okay? In a very loving way. I get your point. You've talked about this. I bet you say, bless your heart. (laughs) But I think he has a point. And I would love people to read his book because I think committed bias is what's going on right now in the Republican Party. And my friends I grew up with who I know are good people and they're taking only the bits and pieces that fit their already concluded conclusions. So therefore, I think we just need to be nice. <laughs> well, one, one thing I think, one thing that's a part of these discussions when I, when I uh, hold them is it's a struggle sometimes to try and get to why people actually think the way they do about things and why they actually believe the way they do about things. Uh, because we all have these internal dialogues about why we're doing what we're doing, but sometimes we're not honest with ourselves. And I think one of the things that we learn from this uh, exercise is that, you know, if you value certain things, then you're going to be more likely to see those issues in the data that you're looking at, in the news reports that you're looking at, in the stuff that sticks in your brain about, oh, you know, what, what do you, when I ask you about incarceration rates, what do you remember, right? Well, what you remember is what lines up with what you already believe. So part of that is a problem. I think part of the problem, too, is that we have media outlets whose economic strategy is built on serving that dynamic, built on serving you a vision of the world that lines up with how you want to see the world so that you will keep watching, reading, clicking. And so part of your job as an informed, media literate consumer is to be very careful about weeding out what parts of your media diet are doing that. And, and limit your exposure to them or consume what they're presenting to you with a, with the knowledge of why they're giving it to you. Right? Um, so I, th- I think being aware of those two dynamics would help the issues that you're talking about. I think, I think this is going well. So <laughs> I think we should just keep doing it. We can move past our little table exercise. And if you've got questions, can I just uh, show one thing to wrap it up, Steve? Abs- I'm so absolutely. No, 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 please. To show that what happened here, in fact, we did pretty well, it sounds like, because uh, Ipsos Mori, a big polling company, does this in 40 different countries, asks people, you know, what do you think the share of immigrants in this country are? What do you think the share of people of color in prison are in this country, et cetera? And people, on average, are always way off, right? We are way off. And so this isn't a uh, an exercise of, just throw your hands up and, and give up on humanity. Uh, absolutely not. This is an exercise in get together around a table <laughs> and ask other people how they know the, these numbers, what do they know about these numbers, and then go look for them. So I hope that that's what we take out of it, this little uh, thing that we did rather than any kind of uh, sort of lack awesome. of hope. Thank you. Good. Okay. Let's just open it up for other questions for the three speakers, and let's just keep going. Well, first off, I'm a millennial myself, so I tend to question even truth and facts themselves. I just want to know, I want to, I have a question for you all. I want to know what role do you all think the media should play as far as provoking public accountability 
and provoking necessary action so that people don't see these numbers and remain complicit. It's, it's journalism's job to expose this stuff. And, you know, we're the fourth estate. We have to be a check on big institutions. We have to be the voice of the little guy. We have to push for transparency and fairness in government and business and in, in all these areas that we look at. That's all part and parcel of, of what we're supposed to, to be doing. And I think a lot of journalists work very hard to try and do this stuff. If, if you got a chance to listen to or read um, the series that we did on Muslims in America uh, on NPR, that's a perfect example of, you know, we freed up uh, a very talented uh, journalist, Layla Fadel, and, uh, Layla Fadel, and let her go off and report for something like six months on the different lives that people of the Muslim faith are living in America and then present them in these great reports in alliance with National Geographic. So that's that's job one for us, man. Good. I'd say uh, two things. I mean, the movement in journalism that, that I represent, fact-checking, is relatively novel, right? For years, we were happy with just getting the quotes from politicians with this he said, she said form of journalism that regardless of whether it was true, you'd carry it. And I think we've seen a change in that. We've seen uh, uh, people calling a spade a spade, right? Uh, and I think it's it's important. Calling falsehoods false, inaccurate, calling them out. I think we need to do that consistently. I think we need to do that uh, checking our own biases, so making sure that we're not calling uh, the, the falses only on, on, on maybe the side that angers us the most. That doesn't mean a false equivalency. There, are, you know, there's definitely. Uh, 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 I won't get into that. But one thing, Millennium. You can say it. Some people lie more than other. No, people. No, I will say. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> uh, President Donald Trump has had a, a more challenging relationship with accuracy than uh, than many. No, I mean it's not. Uh, we're, we're up to three thousand falsehoods now, this aren't we? This isn't a. This isn't. No, I mean this isn't. Look, if if you say throughout the election that unemployment is. 28, 30, 40 percent, and then are happy to say that it's 4 and 5 percent when you're in the White House, that isn't a problem. What I don't care about is when we then, though, go after each and every one of his jokes or each and every one of his hyperboles. That's, that's where I think we waste our time. We need to, like, and, and not just for him. There are important falsehoods to be called out, and there are things that we should, uh, that isn't the role of journalists. One final thing, if I can, millennial to millennial. I agree, you know, I was, um, there's this thing, this is going to be really trippy, sorry. Uh, there's this thing called the coastline paradox that says that we can't actually ever accurately measure the length of a coastline because it depends on how long your ruler is. And you can shrink your ruler forever until the coastline of Norway becomes 100,000 miles or even infinity. All this to say that even things that we presume as sort of hard facts, the distance of something, are approximation. But... Let's not turn that into a nihilistic facts don't exist, right? We have much better approximations on some things than we do on other things. And I think our generation needs to also hold on to that as a, as a self-evident truth. I'd like to weigh in just for a moment on that question. And for me, when we talked earlier about is it the media's responsibility to break the bubble or individuals, I'm going to stand for the individual responsibility. A recent Annenberg study showed that a third of the Americans surveyed could not name a single protection in the First Amendment. 
It also said that or showed that 31% of the Americans surveyed could not name a single branch of government. So if we accept that those are true facts, and I, I'm going to right now, what is so deeply troubling to me is that we can have the best information in the world. We can have the best conversations in the world, but you cannot protect a democracy when you have rampant civic ignorance. And this, to me, is, a, is in my world, the greatest struggle that we face because I don't think we can maintain a democracy over time without the fundamentals. So my hope would be that in this effort to find facts, the effort to talk across the gaps of age and race and culture and education and geography and politics, that what we're really doing is building a democracy and we have to have some basic information to do that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The cool thing about being a TV critic is you get to see stuff early. So this afternoon, I was watching HBO's version of Fahrenheit 451. That doesn't come out uh, for uh, weeks. All right, don't show <laughs> off. Okay, you are so cool. <laughs> and uh, with Michael Shannon and, and Michael B. Jordan. And, and the thing that struck me about that, 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 that movie is all about where we are now. And, you know, they're in this world. I, I, you know, I'll spoil it for you. They burn books. So, so, so they're in this world where, where books uh, are being burned out of existence by a totalitarian government that has these firemen who start fires instead of stopping them. And one of the activists who's trying to get books, trying to preserve books said, you know, we made this world. We chose this world. The reason it exists is because we wanted it to exist. And, and, and what's striking me about where we are now is that we have all this choice now. And we're making these choices. We're, we're choosing to, to spread fake news on, in, in Facebook. We're, we're choosing to live in our bubbles. We're choosing to fight each other on social media instead of trying to connect with each other. Everybody's not choosing that. But, but some of this is we're, we're, we, we have all this choice now. And now we got to figure out how to make the choices that will preserve the democracy that we all think is important, I assume, living in this country, right? And, and so I just wanted to share that and, Keep your ears open for my review of Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> Let's do one more question and then and then we'll wrap it up. You've been hitting on it and we've been treating this fake news phenomenon as somewhat benign, but you've also hit upon it on the level that where it's consistently being done by the leadership and they call basically something fake news they don't agree with. I mean, it's a fact that it's there. And they don't agree with it, okay? In that situation, I'm just trying to broaden this discussion some, where you've got people at the tops of government, they're actively trying to mislead you about things. What more do we feel that we haven't necessarily talked about that either we or the media need to be doing to fight back against that? Because it's not just a simple thing where your friend might be mistaken about something. There's a deliberate campaign, I think, going on to mislead people so that they don't pay attention, potentially, to maybe what really is important in the country. Yeah, I I don't have anything very intelligent to say about that because it's obviously a really big problem. I think you're right. And, you know, we're all just individuals. So how much power do we have? 
I don't know. Does anyone else want to say something more uplifting than where I'm going with this? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, as I said before, there, there are media outlets, there are politicians or political parties out there that will use these techniques. And what we're trying to do now is spread a little media literacy to try and, and diffuse uh, those techniques. In a sense, we're in uncharted territory in a way. You know, we, we're in a situation right now where one of the president's lawyers went on television and essentially said, that stuff you're accusing us of, we did it. <laughs> now what? And, and, and in a weird way, I think part of what's happening with Giuliani and Trump is that they have decided that the president's fans don't care. And it doesn't matter that he, that he lied to the press and that he may have passed on lies to Sarah Sanders, who then passed them on to the press, and that they're totally changing their stories now, as long as they don't get prosecuted for it, and 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 their their fans will stay with them. My fear, and I said this earlier tonight, is that what breaks that down is some calamity in objective fact that hurts everyone and is impossible to ignore. And then all of a sudden, you got to drop all this tribalism, and you got to deal with what's in front of you. The Great Recession did that. You know, all this nonsense about Republicans and Democrats had to, had to go by the wayside because our economy was coming apart. What will it take to bring us to that point now? My hope is that we have gatherings like this and we spread the word and we, we come to a new way of talking about this stuff so that's not necessary. But my fear is that's what it's going to take. I've got one last question. One last question. Where, where are you, Liz? Right over here. Well, that doesn't help. Uh, <laughs> house right, I think. Light. Got it. Okay. House, okay. Got it. So, you know, with a lot of this, like the, the, the young lady said, you know, I'm the only one with a master's degree at the table. I think she was hopefully joking or everybody was fine with what she said. But, um, you know, this, this gap in education. So we're talking about percentages versus proportions. We are talking about reputable news sources, and most of us understand what that means. It's vetted. We're talking about science, all those things. And so what I'm concerned about or have a, wanted to ask you about is how do we keep that divide from growing when it comes to critical thought and education with this? So there's somebody who uh, maybe has a high school education, didn't have statistics, who, you know, in terms of trying to help that person understand, well, you know, when you look at the, the murder rate or something like that, I mean, a lot of these things, even we were probably kind of really using our brains to try to figure out. But there are a lot of people who maybe don't have, haven't had that opportunity to learn in such a way to be critical of media. And so what do we do about that so that it isn't kind of this move towards more and more elites who understand, you know, the difference between fake news, et cetera, and then people who are buying into that because they don't have that ability to decipher? I mean, I'd say two things. Uh, one, I think education should be a universal right, right? That's not a, and so this isn't a thing that, just like digital literacy shouldn't be a thing that you do in college, it should be something that is taught to you as you go through grade school, right? Civic literacy, critical thinking should be part of curricula from first grade. But I would like to sort of reframe a little bit there is a question of sort of does everyone have the opportunity to to decipher 
the percentages, etc. But there's also studies by Dan Cahan at Yale that found that uh oh, um, are you a Cahan fan or a Cahan? Yeah. Okay, good. That uh, that found that. Uh, yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm a fan. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> That's yeah, right. Sure. We're, we're nerding out over our favorite <laughs> cognitive scientists here. No, but in all seriousness, the what what those studies found that the most scientifically literate respondents weren't necessarily the ones who were getting the accurate responses because they actually had the skills to explain away evidence that they found that they disliked and so they found he found that the most cognitively curious the folks who were more sort of just exploring were the ones who did best and so i do want to you make an excellent point Uh, just like eric was saying we should hold two things in our head at the same time i think these are also two important things uh, that we need to hold at the same time so one we need to give opportunity to people to have those skills and on the other hand we shouldn't presume that the skills alone are are the the be all and end all thank you for your question I'll, i'll add on to that um when i talked about how people who have more expertise are often more biased that's the study i was referencing and it's true that they can they can um become more biased but that doesn't necessarily mean that they always become more incorrect. It kind of depends on the issue, right? And I think the point that you were making that I think is a really good one is that how do we not alienate people and push them towards uh, some of these questionable news sources that are talking to them in their language? And I, I don't, we shouldn't be talking about Trump probably, but like, People, a lot of people who voted for him, they are less educated people in society, and that can be something that sort of feels bad. You feel like you don't have a lot of prestige for that reason, and if someone's willing to speak to you in your language, you're going to be more willing to listen to them, and then you're right. We can get this this divide between the elites, the cognitive elites, and and then it's, it's almost a new a new sort of division that we have in the US that we're that we're really being forced to confront i think for the first time because of trump so we learned something at least and it's it is a really hard problem and i would say that this is one thing that i do think the media should be responsible for because what they're supposed to do is take information that's complicated and make it digestible to regular everyday people and Science is really hard. Statistics are really hard. You could ask two expert statisticians the same question, and it's very possible they'd come up with a different answer. And so I would like to see the media be be better at taking these kinds of complicated problems and, and laying them out for people in a way that's easier to understand, and then hopefully we don't alienate certain groups of people and end up and what I would say is borderline a crisis that we're in right now. Yeah. I, w- I would say uh, when we talk about education, it sounds like one thing we need to do is teach people to be open-minded, too. It's not just about learning facts or having, a, having more knowledge about civics. It's about being taught to be more open-minded about the facts you think you know. I wanted to bring it back to my man, the millennial, too, because this, this statistic that you cited about 30% of people don't know this or don't know that, uh, I think part of what millennials do and what some people who are at the forefront of this uh, media world we're in now, they say, why do I need to know that, right? Why do I need to know that? And so I think part of it is that we have to make sure that we're creating a world where there's an answer for that, 
right? Well, you need to know this because your life is affected in this way or your life is affected in that way. Some people are so disengaged from the, not because of choices they've made, but they're disengaged from the things that we view as civic society. And so why do they need to know that? Like, we need to make that case as the people who believe in these institutions. And we need to make sure those institutions are proving to them why they deserve to, to be known about and, and engaged with. And that's part of our problem, too, I think. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to go ahead and close this down because we are past our time. Would you please thank these wonderful people? They liked you. They really liked you. And let me close with this. I, you know, I stand here in, uh, for the Florida Humanities Council. The humanities, as you probably know, are that, those studies of philosophy and literature and, and history and religion and ethics. The humanities are a 2,500-year-old search for the truth. And so this game keeps going on. We're soldiers in this game. We've got a big hill to climb, but I'm really optimistic we'll be able to climb it with your help. So thank you all very, very much for being here tonight, and we are adjourned. Hi again, it's Vanessa here, your podcast host. I hope you enjoyed this throwback program, Your Brain on Tribal Media. Let's give a huge thanks to our guests and facilitator who were entertaining while also teaching us some things. And by the way, you guys, I just made a second pot of coffee for the day, something very unusual for me, but I'm feeling great about it, especially because I used my giant cup today to stay under that four cup limit. All right, moving on. Listen, you guys. I literally stopped in my tracks during one part of this program, and I wonder if you did too. I think it was Eric who said this, I'm afraid that it's going to take a huge calamity to wake us up to the fact that we need to value facts. (laughs) Whoa, (laughs) y'all, I find it so fascinating to think about his statement at this moment in history to think about this program happening three years ago, and also to think about the insurrection on January 6th. I bet that if we could somehow go back in history, and we wrote about the insurrection as a hypothetical situation before it happened, most of us would agree that would be an example of a calamity that would wake us up. It would be a moment where we'd have to realize where we are, how far we've come down this divisive path, and the damage to our democracy that's happening before our eyes. But here we are in this moment, in the wake of the insurrection, and I'm sitting here thinking, hmm, that wasn't even big enough. Not that I want something bigger, you guys. Please know on that. So How can it be that even people in our Congress continue to be divided over the events on January 6th? I find myself wondering, really, how big the calamity needs to be to push us onto another path. And I know at least some of y'all are thinking I'm only talking to the right when I say that. 
But really, the situation that we're in is going to take people from across the spectrum to get us out. And what I see on both sides, but has especially surprised me from the left, is how we've written off people from the other side. We're checking out and we're looking at the other side as a lost cause. Well, I think doing that will get us into even more dangerous territory. And so what's it going to take for us to realize that we're really on the same team here? Most of us wanting pretty similar things for our families and our country. So that's my plug for why this Village Square work and all bridge building work is so important and why you should share these programs in your circles. As we've seen through our current season, A Citizen's Guide to Saving America, it's going to take a citizen's movement to help us heal and work against all the forces out there that benefit from us hating each other. We're glad you're here as part of the solution. And we'd be so grateful if you'd share these programs with your friends and family so we can broaden the movement and go forward together despite our differences. Or really, because of our differences, that's what makes us stronger. That's my shameless plug, y'all. I'll let you go now. We have a great lineup of programs coming for you on the Village Squarecast. So please make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts or on our website at villagesquare.us slash squarecast. And to stay up to date with everything happening at the Village Square, sign up for our newsletter at villagesquare.us. We appreciate you listening to Your Brain on Tribal Media. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.